Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while offsetting your carbon footprint and delivering solar energy to the world. Unconfirmed listeners get their first solar cell free by visiting sunexchange.com slash unconfirmed. Today's guest is Mira Cristanto, research analyst at Masari. Welcome, Mira. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for uh, having me here. You recently wrote a report on Asia's crypto landscape. Can you give us a broad overview of why and how Asia is such an important geography in crypto? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, my background is uh, traditional finance, and I spent maybe about 15 years, uh, you know, focused on equities in terms of uh, all the companies or sorry, all the countries in Asia Pacific. So I was always very well acquainted with like the cultures and also the different politics and macroeconomic structures of the different countries. You know, sometimes what I take for granted in terms of understanding the market I find that a lot of my colleagues or a lot of my friends in the U.S. or Europe might not necessarily know what's happening in Asia. And so, you know, I think a couple of interesting pointers is that, for example, like, you know, by December last year, 42 percent of the market cap of the top 20 tokens that actually had a headquarters basically was from Asia. I think chain analysis also said that 43 percent of global transactions are from Asia. And then also a lot of China, a lot of uh, Asian companies basically dominate the future space. So 98% of, um, you know, futures is based in Asia. You know, I think people don't understand that Tether is based in Asia. Polkadot has a lot of supporters in Asia. And so a lot of tokens might have, uh, yeah, a lot of tokens might see a lot of funding from Asian uh, investors and Asian companies. Although I think the media mostly picks up, uh, you know, US and Europe. And so I think this, this, I guess, report tries to cover some of the stuff that we might miss in Asia. Yeah, something that struck me in your report was you said that Asia accounts for 98% of ETH futures volumes and 94% of BTC futures volumes. Why why does Asia so completely dominate the trading volume in futures? Yeah, um, I, I, I guess that probably is like part human capital and part like the genesis. So if you think about it, so like, for example, BitMEX, you know, FTX, these are big companies that are in Hong Kong. And I think you have a huge concentration of financial services in Hong Kong, probably second to uh, New York City. Um, and you also have, I guess, a lot of regulation shaping how companies are. 
you know, until November last year, uh, regulation was optional in Hong Kong. So now the SFC has made a proposal where, you know, that would no longer be optional. But as a result, you see a ton of companies have, uh, you know, extremely exciting uh, products. For example, like BitMEX created the first auto deleveraging product. You know, FTX is very innovative and very quick um, also to introduce new products. And I think I think that's just a, a background of where Hong Kong is in terms of being a financial hub. Yeah, we saw how quickly FTX moved to capitalize on the GameStop um, momentum that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you know, obviously I just called out the difference in the futures volumes. And would you uh, cite any other different trading behaviors that seem to be different between East and West? Um, I think in terms of trading behaviors, like, um, you know, I think in... In the U.S. Um, and Europe, you see a lot of the decentralized movements, especially DeFi, coming from there. You really saw a lot of developers in China uh, are are on the back foot in terms of DeFi applications, and I think that's really because like cultural there are cultural differences. So, for example, I think in Asia, people are a lot more comfortable with centralization. Um, you know, if you look at Japan, uh, it's okay. It's okay to like politicians. It's it's great. You know, bankers are seen as great. This is not the same narrative as the West. You know, I think you see, for example, a lot of support of Ripple in uh, Japan, in Philippines, because people have no problems with sensorization. Yeah, there's a little bit of nuances in terms of different styles and different cultures. Of course, uh, these are just generalist uh, generalizations of uh, of the culture. But yeah, I think you can see where, um, you know, a lot of, for example, you know, another thing is that privacy tokens are generally not allowed in Asia uh, by regulators. So, um, you know, whereas Zcash might be super popular with my colleagues in the U.S., um, you know, among my friends in Asia, we don't really see that. We don't really see a lot of talk about privacy tokens, uh, you know, on this side of the world. All right. Yeah. And one other thing that I noticed was um, it seems like in the in Asia as well, certain things just around the general culture in tech and investing are different. Like you cited um, how Wi-Fi penetration there is extremely high and even just technology penetration like um <laughs> I, you know i have relatives who live in korea and uh, my parents get annoyed when they come to the us and then they're like everything's so backwards here and you know whatever <laughs> but yeah it, it was just really interesting reading some of these cultural differences and also the propensity toward gambling in um asian cultures so, you know, even though we've been talking about Asia just in these generalities, obviously it is a very diverse place. And reading your report, I was really struck by the differences in regulation across the region. So do you want to just kind of give us an update about, about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think generally regulation is cautious. Um, so, you know, the first to regulate was, um, so if you look at like who tried to ban Bitcoin. So in 2013, Thailand banned Bitcoin. China banned Bitcoin 2014, Vietnam 2017, Korea 2018. So now regulation softened, but has been a little bit Wait, I'm uh, sorry, more Korea banned Bitcoin in 2018? So, I yeah. So basically in January 2018, the Ministry of Justice um, banned Bitcoin trading. And so, and then they investigated six banks that basically were service providers to crypto exchanges. Uh, there was such a big backlash on this that they had to retract their, um, their ban. And so they said, they softened it and they said, okay, in January 2022, there'll be a 20% profit tax on crypto trading. So I think, uh, you know, especially, um, 
this is probably really important for people to, you know, realize that the people do have a voice. Like in India, when they tried to ban basically banking for crypto enterprises as well, like the Supreme Court eventually overturned the Reserve Bank of India statement, basically because of the lobbying of crypto enterprises and the people there. So people aren't powerless to just accept what, um, what regulators are saying. They are responding and regulators are also understanding that they have to, you know, keep up with the times. So, and, and, you know, I think an example of that is Japan. So Japan was the first to regulate in 2017. You know, Japan has been hacked the most in the world. So you had Mt. Gox, you had CoinCheck. Uh, they've been hacked almost a million Bitcoin in the past few years, uh, which is a tremendous amount. And despite that, you see a lot of uh, regulations still coming out. And, you know, Japanese support is pretty strong, even amongst banks who tend to be sitting on the sidelines and investors and major investors in these crypto exchanges. I would say like the biggest difference for all these regulations is probably Hong Kong, because every country has always created a new framework for crypto. Um, Hong Kong has done something different where they took the existing financial framework and they actually injected crypto. Crypto, crypto companies that are licensed, they have to follow all the regulations of financial, uh, of, you know, other financial companies. Uh, plus they have the added layer of being a crypto company and having to do, you know, extra regulations for perhaps being a safe, uh, you know, showing that they're safe, showing that, you know, their leverage requirements are, are met. Um, so it's actually doubly hard to be, uh, I guess, licensed in Hong Kong. But at the same time, that means that STOs are wide open for a digital asset exchanges in Hong Kong. Oh, oh, interesting. Security token offerings, you mean? Yeah, security token offerings. Okay. And I also was curious, China seems to have a pretty complex relationship to Bitcoin. Um, can you just break down what is discouraged there? What at least, if not outright encouraged, at least flourishes anyway? And just explain what the Chinese regulatory approach is to Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. So China, um, in 2014, they closed down exchanges, uh, banking services, and then they said they ban uh, finance companies from uh, engaging in Bitcoin and other crypto. And in 2017, they banned Bitcoin trading and ICOs. So right now, Bitcoin trading is banned, but you can see like Huobi and OKX are obviously some of the largest. The way that they structure it is that it's kind of like an eBay where it's a matching service, but they're not supposed to take custody. Um, so really like, you know, seller and buyer are supposed to you know, match with each other. And you have reviews as well, like, oh, this person is really honest and trustworthy. And therefore, you might get better execution if you have, you know, better reviews and five stars rating. It's sort of like a local Bitcoin style. Yeah, exactly. And so and then not... do they use an escrow as well? And, and so people don't necessarily have to meet in person? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. you know, there's, there's lots of different channels. Um, in India, this is what they did as well. So, for example, they said, um, you know, we will transact between you two. And then I'll do the payment offline, you know, maybe through WeChat or through bank transfer. And then I'll, I'll click confirm onto the, onto the exchange. And then they'll let the, they'll let the transaction through. Of course, you know, me not being part of a exchange, you know, maybe I can speak freely that this is obviously not really what happens that, you know, obviously, uh, these exchanges take custody, uh, which is not really, you know, letter of the law, but, uh, you know, these guys have basically been doing that. So, which is okay. I mean, 
Okay. Yeah. Well, that's how things are done in the world in many places. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So in a moment, we're going to explore more of what's happening in crypto in the rest of Asia. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join thousands of people from around the world who are earning Bitcoin while creating a more sustainable energy future with Sun Exchange. On the Sun Exchange platform, you can easily buy solar cells that power schools, businesses, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Unconfirmed listeners get their first solar cell free by visiting sunexchange.com slash unconfirmed. That's S-U-N-E-X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot com slash unconfirmed. Back to my conversation with Mira Cristanto. So as you noted earlier, Japan has been through some of the biggest ups, well, uh, sort of ups, but definitely downs in the crypto space uh, with some of the largest hacks in crypto. And, you know, also it was the first uh, country to regulate. Um, so right now, what would you say is kind of the state of things and how are companies being affected and the markets being affected there? Yeah. So the state of things right now is that Japan is actually like a world uh, like two halves where you've got crypto native companies uh, like Bitfire, for example, and you've got um, securities broker companies that are trying to enter the crypto space. So these security brokerage companies are big companies. You've heard of SBI, SoftBank Investment, although SoftBank had divested you know, many years ago. GMO is also a big um, FX trader, DMM, Rakuten. Rakuten is kind of like the Amazon of Japan. So if you can imagine, say, Amazon going into a crypto exchange, you know, what is different is that these guys aren't really getting market share. It's really like the crypto native companies that are still gaining market share. So um, I think adoption is still relatively slow, um, especially if you think about it. Japan has the largest and most active retail FX trading in the world. So mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of potential. But right now, like penetration isn't there yet. In terms of regulations, um, you know, I think after the hacking uh, in 2018, Coincheck hacking of like half a billion dollars, regulations and licensing has been quite uh, slowed down. But basically, um, with a new license right now, uh, they are making it a little bit more difficult for uh, Japanese companies to to become licensed. But that said, there's a ton of lobbying going on by you know major companies like Daiwa Asset Management to maybe, you know, create a Bitcoin ETF. Um, I don't want to single out Daiwa because I don't think it's, um, it's official, but, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of, uh, major asset management companies that want to enter crypto. And if they do, then the banks will definitely follow because, you know, they have to support, you know, some of these big companies. And what about South Korea? Um, this country has the highest per capita involvement in crypto. You said that one third of the, and workers have invested in crypto, which that's pretty amazing. Um, so what, you know, what else is happening in um, the place of the kimchi premium? Yeah. So I think different in Korea is that people of all ages, so people's grandmothers, grandfathers are invested in crypto that you don't really see elsewhere. So people are quite forward. Uh, I think that's because Samsung is a big part of, you know, Korean, I guess, development in terms of the tech sector. You know, you don't really see any other country that has more police investigations and raids than Korea. They are basically quite cautious because they want to develop, regulators want to develop this market, um, you know, slowly and, and basically curate it to be a more mature and I guess, uh, controlled market. 
But what happens is that they haven't officially licensed companies yet. Uh, they have created a framework, but what they do right now is kind of softly, I guess, creating a license by um, seeing like which companies have proper KYC, which proper companies have proper AML, and they were they will be the ones to be able to get like official banking partners. The companies that don't have this, it's kind of an indication that they haven't really, you know, perhaps gotten to that level for you know proper banking relationships, and so. I guess softly, we might see that the ones with official banking partners might be the first ones to be licensed. And is the kimchi premium still a thing there? Yeah, kimchi premium is a thing because, uh, for example, <laughs> any any companies, any countries that have uh, you know the capital controls like um, China, Korea, India, Vietnam, Malaysia, they will all have a premium, or they all trade in a lag. So in Vietnam. Um, if you see a sell down in the U.S. for or the rest of the world for Bitcoin prices, Vietnam tends to kind of not move for a few days and then they'll catch up later. There's always a lag, um, but all due to capital restrictions. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about um, Southeast Asia. What are you seeing there? In terms of Southeast Asia, I think that regulations are starting to come through. So, for example, um, you know, the first one that is most sophisticated is obviously Singapore. So Singapore has, they haven't outright licensed a, comp a company yet, but they've grandfathered 107 companies uh, under their Payment Services Act by the you know, Monetary Authority of Singapore. So these companies don't need a license because they've been grandfathered. You know, what happens then is that they will slowly be contacted for licensing. So Singapore, you actually see a ton of companies flock to Singapore to set up you know, either offices or regional offices uh, to start companies there because, you know, if they can get the banking relationships, then then it, it would make their lives easier as well. Um, secondly, second most sophisticated is probably Thailand. So Thailand, they've licensed about 13 companies. But the problem with Thailand, and I think they're, they're unofficially relooking to this, is that they've separated kind of like the crypto versus the digital tokens. So that's kind of like layer ones versus, say, for example, ERC-20 tokens. So you need licenses that are different for those. And then you need a different license if you're exchange, if you're a broker, or if you're dealer. That makes it a little bit hard sometimes because if you want to execute, like where are you going to get the assets from? So I think they might relook at to this. Philippines has been extremely forward in terms of licensing and in terms of adoption of crypto. I think because they have like a developer mindset. So last mm -hmm. year in July, the government actually created a portion, like $10 million of their government bonds on Ethereum. I mean, it's still early days. And even if it's on Ethereum, they'll, they'll actually like just swap it with fiat. But I think it shows that, you know, people are, that basically the government is looking at different ways to get basically all the Filipinos around the world involved. Um, and this is another way for like the STO market to help with uh, fundraising. All right. Let's. Yeah. Well, oh, did you want to talk about any other? I know Indonesia is a big country there, but I don't know how active it is. Indonesia is a big country in terms of uh, Indonesia um, is a big country in terms of population, but it's not that active. Gold is mm -hmm. actually the first, um, usually the first investment that people go to, not equities. I think people have not really discovered Bitcoin, but they are slowly. I think there's about like two million clients in Indonesia. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in Indonesia because I used to live there. I love it there. Oh, really? <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> Where did you All live? Right, in so, Jakarta? 
No, in Bandung, oh, which is wow. like three hours southeast. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. And the weather's much better than in Jakarta. <laughs> and let's do a quick tour through India. I know there's been kind of a lot that's been seesawing back and forth, I feel like there. Yeah, absolutely. So in India, um, so in 2018, they tried to ban uh, Bitcoin trading. In 2018, also the RBI banned banking for crypto enterprises. So obviously large, last year, I don't know if you recall, but around March, um, the Supreme Court overturned what the central bank said. And within two months, uh, crypto trading went up 5x. Um, right now, there's still a ban to ban trading and to ban mining. Um, I think this is like an ongoing process. Uh, so, you know, it's still on table, but, um, but there's no real news on it. I think that there's not a lot of funds, um, in, in India, even if it's a very sophisticated investor base. Yeah. I think that's due to regulatory, um, I guess regulatory confusion as well. You know, I think what is interesting is that, uh, just like, you know, Indonesia in 1946, in 1978, in, uh, in November 2016, they did this demonetization. So basically overnight they said, you know, all $10 bills are basically void. So this is to increase transparency. The effects of that was that Bitcoin trading doubled basically overnight because people started to understand that, you know, they wanted, they wanted to be responsible for their own money and you couldn't just like void their own cash overnight. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's still a work in progress, but I think the, the focus there is more on regulatory clarity. And then just to circle back to China, you mentioned mining and how India might be banning that. And I wondered in China, kind of what is the state of mining? Yeah, I think, I think when people talk, when I hear like Americans talk about Bitcoin mining in China, you know, Bitcoin, like it's 65% uh, mining in China compared to the whole world. I think people think that China is like one entity. What's really happening is that they're all super competitive. All these mining pools, like they are cutthroat against each other because they want the best rates. They want the best pricing. They want, you know, the earliest machinery. They want the best locations. So these guys, they don't work in tandem. You know, you can't, you can't say this is all one China. They're really completely separate entities that will do anything to kill each other off. So you know how competitive <laughs> Chinese businesses are. So, you know, this is no different in China as well. There's no, I think, you know, there's this saying in China where the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, you know, especially in mining in China. I mean, these are in rural provinces, typically where energy costs is cheap. So if you have a mining hub, it's really hard for the government to crack down on it because, you know, you are a private entity after all. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've heard that saying before. It must have been from somebody in kind of like, I guess, Chinese crypto Twitter, like maybe Dovey Wan, or I don't know. I, I've definitely heard that saying before. Anyway. All right. Well, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Yeah. Laura, I have a question for you, if you don't mind. Oh, uh-huh. Sure. So I've actually learned, you know, a ton from your podcast, but I saw on your Twitter profile that you're a no coiner. Why is that? Oh, just um, for journalistic ethics reasons, like some publications I might want to write for wouldn't Want, wouldn't like let me write for them if I owned the stuff that I cover. So okay. um, I'm not like philosophically, I'm a no coiner. I'm, you know, a no coiner because I, I would rather write about Bitcoin than own it, I guess. Although I really would like to own it, but you know, if uh, that's going to prevent me from writing from certain publications, then, then I won't own it. So 
<laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for your contribution anyway for the dispersion of information. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I love I love doing what I do. It's super, super, super fun. I've just been having so much more fun professionally than I could ever have imagined. So anyway, all right. Well, thanks again for coming on Unconfirmed. Great. Thank you. Take care. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Thanks for tuning in to this week's News Recap. First headline, Coinbase chooses NASDAQ for direct listing. The blog reports that crypto exchange Coinbase, which will be going public via a direct listing later this year, has chosen NASDAQ as its venue. The selection is somewhat surprising given that the New York Stock Exchange, a NASDAQ rival, is an investor in Coinbase. However, NASDAQ tends to be the home for technology stocks. On January 25th, NASDAQ Private Market, which allows secondary trading for shares in private companies, launched trading for Coinbase stock. According to the block, shares were matched at a price of $200, which implies a roughly $50 billion valuation for the largest crypto on-ramp in the U.S. That figure is lower, however, than the implied $70 billion valuation based on the pre-IPO futures contracts that have been trading for Coinbase on derivatives exchange FTX. Next headline. MicroStrategy's Bitcoin for Corporations event draws more than 5,000. At the Bitcoin for Corporations event held by MicroStrategy on Wednesday and Thursday, Chief Executive Michael Saylor said that more than 5,600 people had registered, and 1,400 companies had signed up for the conference session on legal considerations regarding buying Bitcoin. At the conference, Ross Stevens, CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management and Executive Chairman of NYDIG, its Bitcoin subsidiary, estimated that there would be $25 billion in institutional Bitcoin assets by year's end. Watch this space for the impact this event has on Bitcoin over the same time frame. In other corporate Bitcoin news, Ruffer, the multi-billion dollar investment management firm in the UK that had invested in Bitcoin last November, sold 40% of its holdings, netting $650 million. Next headline, January sees spike in crypto metrics. Total adjusted on-chain volume, which is another measure for economic throughput, nearly doubled from December to January, hitting $529 billion. That's 72% higher than the previous all-time high of $308 billion in January 2018, the top of the last bubble. From December 2020, Bitcoin's on-chain volume jumped by 57% and Ethereum's by 181%, though Bitcoin's on-chain volume is still 30% larger than Ethereum's. However, when stablecoins are added, the 30-day moving average of on-chain volume on Ethereum is about 1.6 times that of Bitcoin. The stablecoin supply alone grew 34% from December to $37 billion in January. Meanwhile, Bitcoin miner revenues hit $1.1 billion, the second highest monthly revenue of all time, just after December 2017. Ethereum miners saw revenue of $830 million, a new all-time high. Next headline, ETH hits new record at $1,700.
CME ETH futures are launching next week, and that's made quite a number of investors bullish on ETH. According to Business Insider, this week, the second largest crypto by market cap hit a record high of $1,698.56. DeFi tokens also rode ETH's coattails with the coins of Chainlink, SushiSwap, and Aave hitting record highs on Wednesday or Thursday. Just before press time, it was reported that Yearn suffered a hack with $2.8 million stolen by an attacker out of the version 1 YDI vault, which in total lost $11 million. Ave founder Stani Kulachov tweeted shortly afterward that the exploit required 160 nested transactions that took advantage of multiple DeFi protocols and cost more than $5,000 in gas fees. Next headline, PayPal plans for crypto unit. PayPal CEO Daniel Shulman, in the firm's Q1 earnings call, revealed that the company intends to create a department dedicated to crypto services. He also noted, quote, Everyone who signed up for crypto is opening up their app two times as much as they previously did. Next headline, Visa may utilize crypto networks. In Visa's Q1 earnings call, CEO Al Kelly said Visa could use crypto networks for payment and that the firm was working with wallets and exchanges to enable users to purchase crypto assets with their credit cards. He added, quote, It goes without saying, to the extent specific digital currency becomes a recognized means of exchange, there's no reason why we cannot add it to our network, which already supports over 160 currencies today. Next headline, IBM blockchain team shrivels up. Coindesk reports that the IBM blockchain team is, quote, down to almost nothing, citing four anonymous sources. The company's blockchain unit had greatly missed revenue targets two years running and had undergone a number of firings for business reasons. One ex-IBM source estimated that the team was down to 10% of its former self. Also, the previous head of blockchain at IBM, Jerry Cuomo, a previous guest on Unchained, now works on artificial intelligence. Coindesk writes, quote, Looking back to its 2017 financial statement, IBM called itself the, quote, blockchain leader for business. All mention of the technology is now absent from the company's statements. An IBM spokesperson said, quote, IBM maintains a strong team dedicated to blockchain across the company. Time for fun bits. Forbes Blockchain 50. See who makes the current crypto billionaires list. The Forbes Blockchain 50 editorial package has a number of great articles. These are my former colleagues, including a roundup on everyone's favorite topic, Bitcoin for corporations, with appearances by Michael Saylor and Daniel Shulman, who were previously mentioned in this news recap, plus a Q&A with Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital, which has a Bitcoin fund. Also, despite what's happening at IBM, the package describes how enterprises are using blockchain technology with Honeywell, South African SAPI, and Atlanta's Kona Services making the list. Finally, the package includes the latest crypto billionaires list with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong coming in at the top with $6.5 billion, FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried coming in second at $4.5 billion, Ripple chairman Chris Larson, who is being sued by the SEC, coming in third at $2.9 billion. Michael Saylor at $2 billion, ranking fourth. And Binance CEO Chengpeng Zhao, a.k.a. CZ, coming in fifth at $1.9 billion. Check out the full list to see who else made the cut. Second fun bits. With New York Mag, Sam Bankman-Fried ballparks his net worth at $10 billion. 
If back during the election, you were wondering how it was that FTX founder and CEO Sam Bankman-Fried became the second biggest donor to then presidential candidate Joe Biden, New York Mag, which was one of my favorite magazines, has you covered. First, Sam gives his own estimate of his net worth, $10 billion, which is um, more than double the $4.5 billion that Forbes estimated. This entertaining profile gets his philosophical thoughts on factory farming with this choice quote. It's a chicken being tortured for six to eight weeks, so we can spend half an hour eating it. The article then details the vegan's interest in the effective altruism movement, which is his way of trying to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. The article also runs through the math by which he realized that giving more than $5 million to Biden and pro-Biden groups would have a greater impact on the election than knocking on doors in swing states. And of course, it takes us through his presidential election prediction market wins and losses, which he reveals resulted in a non-trivial profit. Definitely a fun read about one of the more notable characters in the crypto space. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Miro, Mira, and crypto in Asia, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unchained YouTube channel today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.